Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I loved interviewing Bob Chapman, who is a true champion of human-centered leadership, and he has a TEDx talk on the same topic. He's also the author of a fantastic book called Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for People Like Family. Simon Sinek says about the book, a lot of leaders talk about this, see what happens when you actually do it. In this wide-ranging discussion, you will hear how a one-hour scheduled lunch with Simon led to three hours where they both discussed the huge upside of truly caring for people. Bob outlines why people need to be taught how to care and exactly what they need to learn. You'll also find out from Bob the two most powerful questions a leader can ask. I was so impressed by this book that I bought a copy for Brendan Carter, my co-founder in WeCare365. We've applied many of these principles in our company. And this isn't a book of theory, but one crowded on amazing business results. As the CEO of Barry Waymiller, a global manufacturing technology and services company, some of Bob's achievements include being named number three CEO in the world in an Inc. Magazine article. International Business Magazine nominated him in the top 10 social capital CEOs. And he has grown the business from $20 million when he started to now turning over $3 billion plus. Bob describes a real crisis in leadership and why having a caring environment is so critical now. He believes that leadership and parenting are exactly the same. There are so many gold nuggets in Bob's insights. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Bob Chapman to The Caring CEO. Bob, when we were talking just before we started, you shared a very interesting story about a lunch with Simon Sinek. Would you mind just giving a little bit of the background of that and why it was so significant to you? Yeah, I think uh, I think this background puts in context some of the questions you wanted to cover. Because if you kind of understand the background, you'll understand better my responses to some of the questions you kind of put forward to me. But again, this whole journey I've had from, I'll call it management to leadership, uh, it really began, and I'll get into it later, in 1997. It was just an internal series of transformative events that changed my view on what a leader's responsibility is. But it was just an internal within our company. We weren't addressing a problem. The company was doing well. It was evolving. And about uh, 12 years ago, our communications director approached me and said, somebody from Green Bay has told us we ought to watch this guy named Simon Sinek, who gives a talk on finding your why. She she said, I think it resonates with kind of the things that are evolving here. I think you ought to watch it. So I maybe watched half of it. I thought it was Sounded like the guy was interesting. And I just casually said to uh, uh, our team member, Emily, I said, well, why don't you just drop him a note and if ever has, wants to have lunch? Didn't think much of it. Well, apparently she wrote a very thoughtful note. Simon's assistant, Kim, saw it and said, Simon, I think you ought to talk to this guy. He said, you know, okay, whatever. 
Simon's in New York. I'm in St. Louis. And they arranged for us to have lunch in Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> so I fly 2,000 miles to have lunch. <laughs> Not bad. And I get to lunch with this guy. I, I had no expectation, really. I just, and so I sit down and uh, Simon says, you know, Bob, I hope you understand it, but we've only got, I've only got an hour because I've got a lot of commitments this afternoon. And I said, Simon, that's fine. I've got to get to Aspen for dinner with my wife. So I, I really didn't care. Within 15 minutes, Simon says, you know, I could cancel all my appointments and we could meet all afternoon. I said, no, no, Simon, I got to get to dinner with my wife in Aspen. He now calls it uh, 12 years later, the famous one hour lunch that lasted three hours. <laughs> but at the end of the lunch, which became very intellectually engaging, Simon's an anthropologist and I'm an accountant. Can you imagine trying to an anthropologist talk to an accountant? But anyway, <laughs> the end of the conversation, Simon didn't say this, but what he said was, I love it, but I don't believe it. I want to see it. Now, we had never thought about people being interested in our cultural journey. We hadn't talked about it. It was just happening, you know, in, in a very thoughtful way as these experiences happen. And so Simon flew in and spent two days talking to our people a couple of months later. After his first, at the end of his first visit, we have recorded, he stood up among our team and said, I am no longer a nutty idealist. I have just seen what I dream of. I dream of a day you could walk down any street in this country, in the world, tap anybody on the shoulder and say, do you like your job? And they'd say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. And Simon said, at Barry Waymiller, what you've given me, if it exists, it must be possible. So Simon went, as he said, he was no longer a nutty idealist. He was a realist because he had just found what he dreamed of. So Simon, 12 years later, is probably our biggest advocate in the world. He's got over a million followers. He's a brilliant thinker in, in regard to leadership, uh, has been a phenomenal partner for us. But his second book ended up being, which is called Leaders Eat Last, was stimulated by him studying the Marines, leadership in the military, where officers are dedicated to the men and women in their care, and Barry Wimler, and a few other examples, but mainly about what he saw at Barry Wimler about our dedication to the people we have the privilege of leading. So that journey, and Simon opened the door to the world. Simon, through his massive connecting base, started bringing guests into our plant, and virtually everybody said to me, I've never seen anything like this. You have got to share this with the world. So the opportunity to talk to you today, to share with your audiences this revelation we've been given, that's been validated by our book, Everybody Matters, has now sold over 80,000 copies around the world in seven languages. It was just bought by a Russian publisher to be published in Russia. Penguin, our publisher, said a good business book sells five to 10,000. We're at 80,000 and growing. And Harvard wrote a case study on our culture, similar to our book. And Harvard, Harvard Publishing told us the other day, it is now one of their best sellers with over 70 universities from Japan to India using this to teach culture in business school. So to your audience today, the message that we're going to share has been tested by dramatic groups of people from around the world, from McKinsey to Harvard to Stanford to Rosh Zodio to Srikamar, I mean, to some amazing thought leaders. And the universal statement is, I've never seen anything like this. 
Uh, and so that so it's been validated by both the interest in it and all the guests and and uh, if you will the opportunity I have to speak around the world today to give people a sense of hope that we can begin to heal this poverty of dignity caused by management, which means the manipulation of others for your success. Mm. And leadership is a stewardship of the lives entrusted to you. I should just add uh, for our listeners that I came across your book about uh, four years ago and it just resonated so strongly. And um, I just started this uh, new business called Factor C, where C is for care. And I bought a copy for my co-founder, Brendan Carter, and sent it to him. And he said, this stuff is gold. It is absolutely gold. And, um, and so your book, your philosophy has really underpinned everything we have done. And, uh, you know, we've gone about having a business that can help prevent mental health issues and really promote a great sense of culture, uh, a caring culture in the workplace. And um, before we go into your journey, I'd just like to get your thoughts right now about what care in the workplace need, means to you after everything you've done? Well, I, you know, words are to me important, okay? Because, um, and I've gravitated to the word care because I'd want to tell your listeners that this journey, this eclectic journey I've been on, where, you know, we built a business from 20 million in the 1990s to 3 billion today, mm. a very eclectic journey of putting together in many ways, challenge businesses that we thought we could be good stewards of and give them a future. At the same time, this cultural journey you and I are talking about is just as eclectic. Mm -hmm. I didn't read a book. There wasn't an advisor. It was, and I would say to you that my parenting of six kids taught me more about leadership than my business school ever taught me. And so many of the principles in true human leadership evolve from my experiences of trying to be a good father, a good husband, a good steward of these lives in my care. Because as Simon and I frequently say, there's no difference between parenting and leadership. What is parenting? Parenting is the stewardship of these precious lives that come into our families through birth, adoption, or second marriage, which we all take very seriously. What is leadership? The stewardship of these precious lives that walk in our buildings and our plants around the world and they simply want to know they matter. And you, as a leader, have the opportunity to affirm their worth, okay, and, 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 and show them they matter. Whether Whatever their role is in the organization, it's not a top-down. It is, it is this reversal of the lens. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest message I want your listeners to get out of care, is the reversal of the lens. Mm -hmm. I thought through my education and my experience, I thought that the people in our organization were there for my success. I needed an engineer. I needed a sales executive. I needed a receptionist. I needed an assistant. Why? Because I needed them for my success. When, when the day I realized that everybody in my span of care was somebody's precious child, knowing that the way I would lead would dramatically affect their health and the way they went, went home and treat their spouses and their kids and behave in our communities, it changed everything because 
I didn't, I was never taught to care. I was never taught to expire. I was taught to build or, successful organizations that created profits, okay? And so this is not about pay or benefits. This is about treating people with respect and dignity. Because remember, right before the pandemic in America, when we had the lowest unemployment in 50 years, we were not sending young men and women off to fight wars in foreign countries. And we had a record stock market and a strong economy. We had the highest level of depression and anxiety we have ever had. Mm. Why? We achieved the ultimate goal of our government. We had peace mm. and prosperity. So mm. people could pursue their dreams. They had the financial resources to live with abundance and uh, you know, provide for their families. Why would we have pe- uh, anxiety and depression? Mm. My view is because if you look at the statistics, where 88% of all people feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. 65% of the people would give up a salary increase if they could fire their boss. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that work-related stress is the major cause of chronic illness. So we were self-destructing as a society in pursuit of the false sense that financial success was true success. Mm-hmm. And we know that is not the case. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, absolutely. But I want to make sure your listeners know in the 17 years I've been on this journey, not a person in the world has ever debated the simple accountant's view of the world the way it was intended to be. And so I would say to you that the thoughts I'm sharing with you are not my thoughts. There's no way that my intelligence and my background would prepare me to have conversations with people as thoughtful as you and some of the top McKinsey, Harvard people around the world that we now talk to. Some higher power is using us to show the world the way it was intended to be, where people contributed their gifts and went home each night feeling they're part of something bigger than themselves. That is the hope I have to awaken in your listeners. Was there one particular event Bob, that led to that realization that, you know, everyone was so important? Yes. The, uh, again, it began in 1997, uh, and it's in my book, but the first, the, there were three transformative events. The third is the one you're looking for. The first was watching people in the lunchroom when I had just acquired this company. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And they were in America in March. We have what's called March Madness, which is everybody betting on their college basketball team and office pools. That's fun. And I was having my cup of coffee in the morning in a company I had just acquired in South Carolina. I was standing in the lunchroom. Nobody knew me. I didn't, they didn't know me. I didn't know them. And, and they were all having fun talking about the outcome of the playoff games and, and co- collegiate basketball the night before. I wasn't paying any attention to what they're saying. I was watching their behavior. And in hindsight, I've had to piece this all together because I, I, it was a major event for me. So I watched, and the closer it got to eight o'clock, you could just see the fun go out of their body when they had to go to work. I always say, you can't say the word work with a smile, okay? <laughs> so I walk into my first meeting after I, in hindsight, I experienced that. And I said to this group of team members who happened in this area, my first meeting was the team that sells uh, spare parts and service to our customers because that was a significant product line. I wanted to meet with them. I didn't have an agenda. I'm not an organized person. And I said, let's play a game, a little bit like March Madness. Let's play a game. Whoever sells the most parts each week wins. And if the team makes the team goal, the team wins. 
They were shocked. They had no idea what I was talking about, but because I was CEO, they did it. Guess what happened? <laughs> our customer performance service to our customers went up dramatically and joy went up a thousand percent. People started having fun. They could look at the scoreboard every day, see, okay, I'm at hundred thousand parts and hundred thousand dollars. And so they started, it was just like watching a basketball game or a sports game. You could see the scoreboard. They knew where they were individually as a team. So that was my first revelation. Why can't business be fun? Why do we call it work? If I could create fun events that align to value, maybe we could create more value. So anyway, I was astounded. And the feedback I got was amazing. The teamwork that came together to start winning as a team. Before that, they came in, answered the phone, entered an order, answered the phone, entered another order. So there was no, there was no joy to it. It was just, okay, the phone's ringing. Somebody's going to want something. Now they were anxious to pick up the phone. As one lady said to me, it was brilliant. She said, Mr. Chapman, I always thought I was nice to the customer, but now I'm really nice to the customer because I want to win. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> it, was, it was priceless. So anyway, the second was, Cynthia and I were at church, we're Episcopalians, and my mentor was the rector of our church. And after a church service, one day I looked at my wife, Cynthia, and I said, Cynthia, Ed, our, our rector, he's only got us for one hour a week. We have people for 40 hours a week. We are 40 times more possible, powerful than our faith. To influence people's lives. And so I walked out of that church and I said, my second revelation is business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply cared about the people we had the privilege of leading. That was the second step. A couple of years later, uh, I was at a wedding in Aspen. This is the one everybody remembers because people can relate to it so easily. And we were watching this young man and young woman get married and we we're all, they looked so precious. It was so beautiful. The environment, lots of friends. And that day, I, I had the major transformation I think your listeners will relate to. All of a sudden, I had this thought, just a little bit like a church, a little bit like at that basketball uh, environment. Oh, my goodness. All 12,000 people that work for us around the world, they're just like that young man and young lady that we all think is so precious. It's somebody's precious child. It's been placed in our care. And the way we treat them, will profoundly affect the way they go home and live their lives. And all of a sudden, that lens I talked about was switched. I thought people were in our organization for my success and the organization's success. I had a receptionist, I had an engineer, I had a machinist, I had a, a storeroom manager. Everybody had a function for my success or my organization's success. That day, I flipped the lens and I saw those people as my purpose. All of a sudden, I said, my role is to make sure those 12,000 people who put their trust in us every day go home each night knowing that who they are and what they do matters. And they're somebody's precious child, not a function. So that reversal of the way I saw the world changed everything for me. That, and that is the issue that most people can relate to, because wouldn't you want the organization you run to be one that your son or daughter, your niece or nephew, your mother or father would want to work there because they felt valued? So that was really the cornerstone capstone event is the wedding when I realized that people are not functions for my success. There's somebody's precious child that's been placed in my care and the way I treat them will profoundly affect their health. And the way they come and treat their spouses, their children, and behave in our communities. 
I love that uh, concept of uh, flipping the lens. It's so simple, yet I can see how profound it is. I'd like to go back uh, even further um, when you suddenly had to take over the company due to the uh, the death of your father. Can you just uh, explain how you felt on that day uh, when your father passed away so unexpectedly? Yeah, I, I had worked with my dad, who I had not been close with as a kid. Uh, my dad worked really hard. I was very close to my mom. My dad didn't, and I, so I did not have, but when he invited me into the company from where I was working at Price Waterhouse, uh, I decided to do it. Uh, my mother cried because she thought we'd hate each other. And <laughs> my dad and I had a basis that we'd be honest with each other. So anyway, I joined the company, worked six years with him. It was the best six years of my life. He was thrilled to see the way I was able to embrace it. But so we're having dinner in October of 1975 with my mom and dad and I, because he was leaving the next day for Australia. He was going to Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, we had a nice, simple dinner at a drive through restaurant. And the next morning, he died. Okay. And he had set it up. But he said at dinner, you know, Bob, you're really running the company. When I get back, I'm going to make you the executive vice president. So he actually unofficially promoted me moments before he died. So it was a shock to find out that my dad had died. And I was immediately given the challenge of stepping into running this pretty broken $18 million company with two or 300 people that was financially very weak. My reaction, I believe, and again, you have to kind of go back and put the pieces together because, you know, it's, I once heard a statement that if, if, if a car were to kind of break down and, and, and be on top of one of your kids, somehow you'd lift the car, you, the energy you'd get, you couldn't even explain. My reaction was, I'm not going to go down like this. And, and I threw my mind and body into that challenge. And I turned that company around on a dime. Okay. I mean, seriously, it had the most profitable hist- year in its 100-year history the first year I ran it. Okay. Yeah. And I think it was in response to my dad's death. I think it was in response to the fact that our banks pulled on us right after my dad died. And so one of the things I'd say to your listeners from my, my DNA, my experience, from some of my most challenging moments came my greatest personal growth. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's a lesson that I teach students all the time. It was, I mean, to have my dad die and have the first person I meet be the banker to tell us they want out of the loan. And, you know, I'm 30 years old. Uh, and I rose to the occasion of the challenge, you know. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have somebody sit down with me and said, Bob, let's work through it. I just, I rose to the occasion of the challenges Mm -hmm. in the way I I put it back together. So, and the good news is I was only 30 and I started learning pretty quick. What Uh, did you uh, learn from your father? I'm going to rephrase it slightly. The greatest thing my dad ever did for me, he didn't know he did. I wasn't a good student. I don't think he thought I was going to amount to it. I wasn't a problem. I just wasn't a good, I was just kind of, and when I joined the company from my experience in public accounting, I said, you know, dad, if something ever happens to you, you know, I don't want to find that I've got to deal with family issues all the time with mom voting stock or mom becoming chairman of the board. I said, cause I want to work for a professional organization. So my dad 
Unbeknownst to me, went down with the attorneys and set up a special arrangement uh, called a voting trust. And he made me his sole trustee should something happen to him. And it did, you know, and, and as a result, the second he passed away, I became, I voted 97% of the stock of the company, even though the stock had been distributed to the family. So the greatest thing my dad did for me, he didn't know, mm. which is he gave me his trust, which I had not earned. Yeah. Okay. And that is a gift that I don't even know how to quantify what it means when your father gives you a gift to that he, you will take care of all of his descendants upon his unexpected death. It calls you to a higher level than any words could describe. So that was a profound gift he gave me and challenged that trust. And, and that has driven me for since 1975 to be true that I someday, if, if I get a chance to sit down and talk with my dad, I'm going to say, dad, thank you for that trust. I believe I've risen. It, it profoundly affects my life mm-hmm. that you trusted me when I hadn't earned it. It must have been very tough because I, I lost my father a year ago. He was 91, so he had a, a very, very long life. Um, but it, it wasn't sudden. And so everything that wanted to be said was said, and that was a, a really lovely situation. Was there anything else, apart from what you just mentioned, that you wish you'd said to your dad if you had your time again before he passed away? You know, the beauty is uh, I was cleaning my desk the other day, and I, I found a note that I wrote him a year before he died. And it basically said, Dad, this has been an unbelievable relationship that is dramatically richer than either of us ever could have imagined. I mean, I honestly was reading because I was playing on my desk and I couldn't figure out who it was from. And it was signed Bob and to Dad. I thought it must be from my kids. You know, but I don't have a son named Bob. So anyway, it was striking. I mean, I was I hadn't seen it until just like three days ago when I was cleaning out my desk. I have the desk that my dad had. And I thought. Oh, I'm glad I said it to him because so many times we wait mm-hmm. for people to be near death to tell them what we feel. Yeah. And I think the beauty is I had six years to work alongside my dad. And if you said, what did I learn from my dad? My dad had not good health. He had had a heart first heart attack when he was 45. Mm-hmm. Second one when he was 57. He died when he was 60. Mm-hmm. He appeared to be healthy. Right before he died, he just passed a life insurance physical. So that was an indication that insurance companies were willing to extend life insurance to him. But uh, the chance to work with my father, for a father to see his son amount to something in his own eyes, you know, the sense of pride my father had of seeing me blossom at that stage. uh, And then for him to step out of this life into heaven and for me to be able to Somebody, uh, I think you'll, in the context of your question, I'd say to you, I was sitting next to a lady at a dinner party about five or seven years ago, and I hadn't met her before. A conversation led to this question, which I think you'll find interesting. She said, what do you think heaven looks like? And nobody ever asked me that. I had never thought about it. And I thought, you know what heaven would be? A chance to sit down with my dad 40-some years later and say, you know, dad, it turned out pretty well. (laughs) <laughs> this little company that you were able to keep alive from 1953 to 1975, you kept it alive. Mm-hmm. But the trust you placed in me is now a $3 billion global company mm-hmm. that stands for something other than wealth creation. It stands for human 
wealth creation. You know, people feel valued. And he would pass out again because you know, he, because of his health and his personality, he's an extremely nice gentleman. But uh, he couldn't take this family company that was 100 years old that he had stepped into in 53 and give it a future. And I took, he kept it alive and I brought it back to life. And today it's a vibrant global company that stands for good in the world, not just wealth creation, but human value creation. And it has been a remarkable journey with, with huge growth. And I read that you've had over 100, 120 acquisitions. And um, traditionally, acquisitions don't go that well. But obviously, you've been able to share the Barry Weimler culture with these new acquisitions. How did you go about doing that when you, you know, day one with the, the new group? What do you say to them? You know, yeah, we're. I think we're almost approaching 130 adoptions around the world. Adoptions, I like that if, word. Yeah, if you were a church, every time somebody in your faith opened a new church in a new community, you'd see your faith grow in the world, and you have a sense of pride. Every time we get to adopt a company from Serbia to China to India to Japan, you know, to uh, Germany, Italy, we meet the most wonderful people in the world, who just like you and me, simply want to know they matter, mm-hmm. and. When I go back to my second revelation that we have people in our care for 40 hours a week, we have a four, four value global company whose, whose focus is on its people. Okay. And again, in that context, I'd say I was interviewed by Washington University organizational development professors a few years ago because they'd heard about our culture. They came out and they interviewed me for an hour and a half. And you know, I didn't know their questions. It's like, I don't know your questions. But after an hour and a half interview, they looked at me and said, Mr. Chapman, you're the first CEO we've ever talked to that never talked about your product. And these are organizational development professors. And I said, oh, I've been talking about a product for the last hour and a half. I'm not going to go to my grave proud of the machinery, big capital equipment we build. I'm going to go to my grave proud of the people who designed and built that machinery. And that caught them completely off guard. I didn't even know I hadn't mentioned our product, okay, that we produce. So I would say to you, it's our people. You know, we need an economic model to give people a chance to spread their gifts. In our case, it's big capital equipment for people like Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola and, and the brewing and the food industry. So we build big machinery. And but each time we have an opportunity to step into a new community and adopt a company, we have a chance to touch more lives. Okay. I remember when we acquired this company in California, there were some uh, lovely ladies that were in the audience when I was sharing with them our values. And they virtually cried, looked at me and said, I never thought I was going to get to work for a company that cared about me. Okay. And there's this tremendous hunger in the world for caring. Okay. And in business, we are users of talent not caring of people that we have the privilege of leading. So again, that's what I would say to you. The business can be the most powerful force for good in the world. If we simply care for the people, we have the privilege of leading. But this is not about giving them lollipops and benefits. It's about genuinely validating their worth and getting them inspired to work as a team for each other. It's not about your career. It's about how you play your role on the team 
so that the person sitting to your left and your right has a future. Because if you play their your role well and they play, you can as a team create a better future together. Because remember, Gallup did a survey in the world of the number one source of happiness, and it came back from 155 countries that a good job doing meaningful work with a company, with people you enjoy is the greatest source of happiness in the world. Yeah. So we in organizations, not just business, nonprofit, healthcare, uh, education, we have a chance to give people a chance to be who they're intended to be mm. so they can go home each night feeling valued and treat. Again, when I was educated in business, I was never told that the way I would lead or run my company would affect the way our team members would health. Because remember, we, we heard from a, a major medical source in the United States, the person you work for is more important to your health than your family doctor. Yeah. I was never told that, <laughs> never taught how to do that. Yeah. When we yeah. promote somebody to a leadership position, it was an accountant to become our chief accountant. We don't say to you, now I want you to understand that the way you now take on this role is going to affect the health of the people you lead and the way they come and treat their spouse and kids. Because when we teach in our internal university people to, to move from management to leadership, 95% of the feedback, 95% and how it affects their marriage and their relationship with the kids, which is profoundly meaningful to me. We in business, not just affect our customers, okay, and our shareholders. Most importantly, we affect those people in our span of care who simply want to know they matter. And as a leader, you have the opportunity to value them individually and as a team. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. When you go into a new adoptee um, and you say care is important and a lot of people are cynical because I think every company out there say that people are our most important asset, but what they do, what they say is two different things, obviously. So you stress that you are all about care. How do you show your new employees how to care in the Barry Weimiller model? You know, the people that say, you know, our employees are our most important asset, that's just an expression. Absolutely. It's the behaviors that's important, not the expressions. Okay. Mm. And we didn't start off by with the intentionality to create a caring environment. Very crudely, my first revelation was why don't we 
try and send people home feeling fulfilled. That's just the word I use, fulfilled. That's where it began. Mm -hmm. And to do so, we needed to teach our leaders how to do that, okay? Because you can't, honestly, we have so many people in our faith, in our our, uh, government to say, you need to care about the people in your organization. Mm -hmm. Nice statement, but caring is a learned skill. We could tell them they need to speak Chinese too, but then they'd say, okay, but I don't know how to speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say to you, what we do in our, in our internal university, when we wanted to take people from management to leadership, we crudely, roughly, with a clean sheet of paper said, and one of our team members felt passionate about it, David Vandermolen, we need to teach people empathetic listening. It would if you had named a thousand things we needed to teach to create care, and I never would have come up with listening because I thought you and I, we know how to listen. We've got two ears. We're adults. We know how to listen to people. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say to your listeners, the most profound thing we found is the greatest act of caring. The way to actualize caring is not to tell people to care. It is to learn to listen with empathy. It is a skill. It is a learned skill. We, we teach a three-day intense class where we, A, do a disc profile of you so you understand yourself and you understand how each of us are created uniquely different. And if you understand that, the way you listen is you flex to the personality style of the person you're dealing with. You cannot, there's a great golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. Well, that doesn't really work. Mm. You need to treat others as they need to be treated because they may have different needs than you. We are all created uniquely different. And what we do is respect that. Bill Urey of Harvard, when he came in as world peace negotiator, he spent two days like Simon did in our company. And he said he saw the answer to world peace in our company. Oh. I said, Bill, how could you see the answer to world <laughs> peace in our company? He said, I saw a place where people genuinely care about each other. Mm-hmm. And that is the world that he imagines in his world peace negotiations. So, again, you can't ask people to care. Mm-hmm. You have to teach them how to care. It is a skill, and it begins with listening, amplified by recognition and celebration, letting people know they matter in thoughtful, timely, appropriate ways. And then culture of service, seizing the opportunity to serve others. Mm-hmm. Moving kind of from this me-centric, it's all about me and my success and my progress in the organization, to a we model where we care about each other. We, we operate as a team. We generally want Bill and Mary at our left and right to grow with us because we care for them. So the good news to your listeners, this is really good news, is caring is contagious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have found we have found that if I care about you, it releases within you caring for others. Mm. But if I send you home not feeling cared for, which eighty eight percent of people do, it's hard for you to. It's harder for you. It's not impossible. Mm. It's harder for you to care for others when you don't feel cared for yourself. Mm. Okay. So what we've done is that when we actualize, when you feel cared for. Your natural scaring skills surface, but then we teach you how to take those natural skills and turn them into replicable disciplines of caring. Again, I thought when you cared for somebody, you went over and talked to them. That's what I thought. 
It turns out when you care for somebody, you go over to listen to them, not to debate, not to judge, but to understand. What do people say after completing your three-day course? What's some of the feedback you get? 95%, 95% is it changed my life. Wow. That, that, and I say in my faith, the Episcopal faith and my education, what have I ever done in my life that in three days it changed people's lives? Mm. Young people, older people, because it opens up the potential of human relationships. Mm. When you don't know how to listen, you cannot have the relationships. Mm. That are meaningful to you. Okay. It is the greatest gift. Again, the greatest gift is to listen with empathy, to validate them. And so a question I get, which is kind of behind your question is, what do you do about the people that don't get it? And I said, it's interesting how many places, whether I'm giving a talk in at church, uh, nonprofit, people want to know about the brokenness. And I say, I'm sure there's some people that don't get it, but I focus on the people that do, okay? Mm. And I would say to you that if you have somebody, and, and Bill Urey of Harvard described us as having courageous patience, mm. okay? It's like a bus. He describes it as a bus going around a circuit. The bus pull, the truly human leadership bus pulls up. I said, Graham, would you like to join us in this journey? And he, Graham said, you know, in all due respect, I'm just not ready. You know, I'm just... I'm just not ready. We said, that's okay, Graham. We'll be back. <laughs> Sometime later, that bus pulls up again, says, Graham, would you like to join us? You said, you need to give me a little more time. We said, that's okay, Graham. So he describes it as courageous patience. Everybody's journey, everybody's personality is unique. Yeah. You can, one size does not fit all. You could have somebody in your team who's been brutalized in his last jobs. I mean, I've heard, Horrible things about bosses, managers, you know, who really are brutal to the people. You know, it's about results. They get fired. They get downsized because, you know, it's all about making the numbers. And so all of a sudden somebody comes along and says, we care about you. They say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So we have courageous patients. And Simon calls it the law of early adoption. We focus on the people that do get it. We don't let the people that don't get it overwhelm the people that do. And mm. we constantly take the people that do get it and raise them saying, thank you. Mm. It's called the law of early adoptions. It's how you create a movement. You start with the believers and others join you when they're ready, when they can genuinely step on that bus and say, I want to be a part of it. We have a gentleman, of, uh, I think he was in the Marines. He was in a really combating part of Military, as I understand, and he ran a cutoff side thing in the back of our plant. And you kind of stayed away from him if you could, because he was a tough, classic Marine type guy. Today, Randall Fleming is a teacher in our university on caring leadership. He is amazing. The transformation, Harvard professors who went in there wanted to write a book about him. Wow. Because the magnitude of the transformation, the way he articulated it, is so encouraging. I mean, I just think the world of Randall, but you talk about a conversion. And so, well, you know, we, we, if you look at everybody as somebody's precious child, not a function, and treat them like you'd like your son or daughter or your cousin treated, it changes everything. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's our standard of care. You just uh, going back to that uh, metaphor of, you know, the people on the bus. 
uh, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, said that one of the most important things was having the right people on the bus. And that obviously by implications means that some people won't make it and they'll have to, to leave. Um, what are your thoughts about that, particularly when you take over or adopt <laughs> new, new entities? Um, do you ever feel that there is someone there that just won't make it and will be an obstruction and you need to you need to take some action? Tough yeah, action. Right. Uh, you use the word care. I use the word care. We both ended up in our own journey to that word care. But as parents, one of the things I learned that I've embraced, I told your listeners that I learned more being a parent than I did in business school by leadership. It's called hard love. Okay. Being a good parent, being a good student of these precious lives, parent, a steward of these precious lives is not about giving them what they want, is it? It's about giving them what they need, okay, to develop fully. And so I would say to you, we call it hard love. It's the question is, how do you do it? It's not walking up and yelling and screaming, oh, you're fired, get out of here. You're not. It is treating everybody as you would want your son or daughter treated with respect and dignity. If you have a situation where an individual basically is unable to embrace these principles and in fact hurting other people, then there's a human way. And actually in our listening class, we teach confrontation. How do you confront people in a way that you can get them to understand and listen and, and, and affect change? So it's, a, it's an actual skill in our listening class, effective confrontation, okay? Mm. So they can meet your needs. It's not about attacking them. It's about helping them meet your needs. So it's a, one of the things we teach, but it astounds me because we began our university to transform managers into leaders. but 95% of our feedback is how it affects their marriage and their relationship with their kids. Can you have any idea how meaningful that is mm. to me to believe that we're going to end up, our team members are going to be better parents to their kids and probably because of that better spouses to their spouse. And therefore the kids, I could tell my kids to be nice all day long, but if I don't treat my spouse with respect and dignity and, and value, what am I teaching my kids, okay, that observe that behavior? So, again, if we send people home feeling valued, they tell us they have better marriages and better relationship with their kids, which is, I can't even quantify how much that means to my heart and soul yeah. that we did uh, affect youth in this country by simply sending parents home feeling valued. I heard uh, previously a story with you about an employee called Steve and uh, he and others had uh, presented to your leadership team about some new projects they're doing in continuous improvement. Can you just tell a little, little bit about that and what you learned? Probably 15 years ago, we acquired a company in Baltimore where they were on the lean journey, the Toyota production lean journey, continuous improvement, whatever word you want to use. And a gentleman who was very passionate about it, Jerry Solomon, kept saying to us, Bob, Toyota was all about people. Lean is all about people. You know, and you need to embrace this to articulate, to actualize your caring leadership. And so one day we kind of heard him and said, well, maybe we could use this lean process of engaging people to amplify our cultural journey. 
So we didn't embrace it to reduce costs. We didn't embrace it to improve efficiency. We embraced it initially. The idea was we could use that technique to bring about a positive change in our culture. Mm-hmm. And I got into it and the word lean means, in effect, waste elimination, no fat, okay, lean. Do you know anybody that would go home at night motivated by eliminating waste? And I, I met the gentleman who was kind of one of the founding fathers of lean, Jim Womack, really fine gentleman. And I said, Jim, do you know why 97% of all companies fail to become lean, truly lean organizations? He said, it was very frustrating. I said, the reason is because you called it lean. If you had called it listen, <laughs> that what we learned to do is to listen to our people who know in the right environment how to make things better and, and, and how to recognize those people do it, it would have been profoundly successful. But you, you focused it on process improvement. I focused on human improvement. Mm-hmm. And so the continuous journey, we don't like to refer to it as lean or we like to we call it the living legacy of leadership. Leadership principles so profound, they will last generations to come. Mm-hmm. And it's focused on listening to our people in the spirit of every one of us, whether we're parents, citizens, or, or team members in the company. We can be better stewards of our role. And together, we can continually evolve, grow, become better, and enjoy the journey together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that conversation really led to a dramatic, different approach. It was not about, okay, eliminate waste. You know, I mean, again, people who love processes, there's not many people like that, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, so we really went from lean, continuous improvement to caring. Mm-hmm. We all need to embrace being better stewards of every aspect of our life every day to have the society we want to bring kids into where they will emulate the behavior that we've taught. So we really embraced, again, lean, continuous journey with the idea of using it as a distribution model for our new culture. But clearly we got into it and we realized that the challenge of lean, it was all about financial improvement, not human improvement. And I know that you often ask a question when people reflect on the results they've got and you ask them, how does that make you feel? What sort of things have you learned by asking that question? You know, one of the things I want you to understand is I have no idea where that question came from. And I I have to tell this story that I think helps you understand it. We had just embraced these ideas of continuous improvement. We decided to have a conference up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, with all of our operating heads from leaders from around the country. So we had probably 20 some people in the room. And I got an email the night before from Craig Compton that says, Bob, some of our team members in the assembly area have done a lean event uh, for a major customer. And I'm really proud of what they did. Would you be willing to go out in the plant and acknowledge their work? And I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you have them come in tomorrow morning and present to our global leaders? So these gentlemen, none of whom I knew, walked in the next morning to the assembly building and their leader said, you guys are going to go present to the global leadership. Said, okay. So they walk over to the conference room and these three assembly team members, none of which I had met before, 
stood up and talked about this project they did for a major customer to, they came together, they shared ideas, they improved the process, they reduced costs, shortened lead time, improved the workflow, and uh, pleased the customer. Perfect story. But it was all about numbers. Okay, it was all, it was a numeric-based conversation. We save money, we improve, reduce warranty costs, et cetera. And I'm an accountant, so I, that should have been music to my ear, right? I was paying no attention to them. I was watching them. I, again, I just said, come over and share. I had no agenda. And out of me popped. My wife hates it when I say that, but that's the only way I like <laughs> These gentlemen finished a financial presentation on the dramatic improvement they made by working together. And I said to Steve, in this case, okay, the Steve, the, uh, one of the assembly team members, how did it affect your life? And I don't know why I asked him that, but I did. Had no idea what he'd say. And so if you're one of our team members and you got to present to the global leadership team and you, you know, just asked to do a spontaneous, and all of a sudden the chairman say, how did it affect your life? And what he said to me was profound. He said, my wife is talking to me. I said, what? I don't understand, Steve. He said, Mr. Chapman, I worked at this company for a lot of years before you acquired it adopted it. And I'd come in every day, I'd punch my card, I'd go to my workstation. I was told what to do and nobody ever asked me what I thought. I got 10 things right and I never heard a word. I got one thing wrong and I got my ass chewed out. So Mr. Chapman, I now realize, having been a part of your organization for the last few years, that when I went home at night, I didn't feel very good about myself because of that environment a top-down management environment. Since you took over and people ask me what I think, I get to work with my colleagues here and make things better. I go home at night with a much more positive attitude. When I do, I'm much nicer to my wife. And when I'm nicer to her, she talks to me. Said, Steve, we're going to have a new metric in lean. It's going to be the reduction in the divorce rate in America. <laughs> and, and so in that same environment, we after one of these lean events, we asked one of the assembly team members who was on another project, how did it make you feel? And he began crying because nobody ever has ever asked him how he feels. Okay. And the stories we've heard since we felt free to ask people, how did it make you feel? Revealed things you can't even imagine. Because when the McKinsey people read my book, what struck these brilliant people that read my book is what came across, Bob, is the questions you ask revealed things that never would have come up. Mm. I didn't ask him what the results were. I didn't ask him how much we saved. I said, how did it make you feel? How does it affect your life? And what they were, what came out of them was astounding to me. Okay. Mm. Astounding. So I would say to you in, in the work environment in all environments, don't we care? Mm. And, and the way we show we care is through the questions we ask, and the way we listen to the answers they give us. Mm. And some of the answers they give us, what they're telling us is not the words they say, but the, what's the meaning behind the words. And I could give you many stories about that. So when you learn to listen, you learn to not listen to the words. You watch the body language and what they're really saying, because sometimes what they're saying is not what they're really feeling. Yeah. So the questions we ask open up people's hearts and souls, and they will pour them out to you. The question is, how do you acknowledge that? You said Jim Collins, 
who's obviously wrote the book um, about getting the right people on good to great, getting the right people on the bus, right? Okay. That would imply it's all about getting the right people on the bus. I would say to you, I would add to, I would say, let me take that to the next step up. It's not about getting the right people on the bus. It's about building a safe bus, which is your business model. Mm. And then having drivers who know where they're going and how to get there where your leaders. Yeah. And then anybody that gets on the bus is going to be just fine. I was, I was teaching our case at Harvard to 160 global executives who are in for a special program at Harvard, average age 48, 80% outside the United States. And they'd studied our cultural case that Harvard wrote six years ago, have an environment discussion. At the end, the, the professor, Jan Rifkin, said to the students, these executives from around the world, is Barry Wimler successful because of its culture or its strategy? Now, I had never thought about that. So I'm sitting in the class just watching these people discuss our case. And they ended up voting, whether it's the culture or the strategy. And 75% of the, these executives voted our success was because of our culture. Mm. And that opened my mind again. And Jan said, do you want to react to that? And I said, I understand why, because the case is about our culture. I understand why you believe it's our culture that has made us successful. Mm. But my view is the foundation of our success is our business model. I designed a robust business model in the 1990s for my challenges in the 80s. I designed a safe bus, okay? It was based on balance of markets, products, and technology, so we would never be too concentrated in one technology would change and people would get hurt. And then we had to create leaders who knew how to drive that strategy. And so I said, it's a little bit like Ferrari designing the perfect mechanical engine. I mean, perfect high-performance racing engine. But if you don't put premium fuel in that engine, that engine is never going to perform to the potential those engineers designed it to. Yeah. So the, the business model is the engine yeah. and the culture is the fuel that goes into that engine that actualizes that exceptional design. Mm -hmm. If you put regular fuel, low octane fuel that many engines will run on in a Ferrari, it will not perform to its potential. It'll perform, but not to its potential. But if you put premium fuel, which it was designed to do, you will see a performance that is exceptional. So mm -hmm. the business model the bus is the foundation that every leader's got to embrace so that the people who you invite in the organization will have a sense of, of a future. I always say it is the responsibility of every leader to give those in their care a grounded sense of hope for the future, which is a good business model fueled by a good culture. What, what, how do you practice self-care? How do you keep fuel in your own tank? You know, you're, uh, you've had a, a long career, but you still have lots of energy and vision. What do you think is the key to your self-care? You know, my co-author, Raj, tried to get behind my, under the hood of my engine to see what was driving me. And I will have to, I'd have to say to you, as I reflect on my life, I was always a nice kid. I was an average student. I didn't have a lot of drive. Uh, and I would say to you that what I'm blessed with is not a high level of intelligence. I'm blessed with a high level of common sense mm -hmm. and positive attitude. Mm -hmm. And when you combine those two, I teach students at graduate schools where I speak that I'm able to see value where other people don't. The traditional mm -hmm. thinking doesn't. 
Because if, if anybody that goes in and tries to study Barry Winmar growth from a 20 million, 100 year old broken company to a vibrant $3 billion company with acquisitions around the world, where we combine cultures and technology from around the world. And now our share price has gone up 15% a year, compounded for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond our wildest imagination. Yeah. Because again, when Ford Motor Company designs a new truck, they drive it in the worst terrain and the worst condition to see how it holds up. When you design a business model like GE's was and, and Bank of America and others, and they hit 08, 09, those trucks crashed. Okay. Yeah. The design did not hold up mm. to the unprecedented challenge of 08, 09. Our share price went up 11%, and we didn't let anybody go in 08, 09 because mm. I designed a robust business model. So the people I invited in this organization are safe. Okay. So I would say to you, it is an eclectic journey from both. And I tended to buy companies that were challenged either from leadership or technology or financial, because I felt that was my skill. My skill was not to buy a high growth, high potential market with great leaders, because that just wasn't my skill. I had to fix what I had broken in the Mm eighties. Remember the company exploded after my dad's death through my, through my initiatives then it collapsed through a variety of reasons. And I had this phenomenal recovery in 87 with a public offering in London. So I had a chance to take all those traumatic experiences of the late 70s and 80s and embody a design that I thought would be robust. So I say to you what, what you see in me. So I just love life and I love people. I love every day. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just a blessing that some higher power gave me. And I always say you can retire from a job, but you can't retire from a calling. Mm. I believe that I was called to show the world the way we could live and work together where people go home each night feeling valued. And we could be good stewards of, uh, of our relationship with the company and our relationship with our family and our communities and heal this brokenness. I would leave your, uh, your listeners with a thought that Thomas Friedman presented uh, some months ago in the New York Times, given kind of the conditions of the world right now. I don't ever remember a time when reasonable people were more concerned about the future than they are right now, whether it's from education systems to COVID to, you know, to all the other issues in the world. There's just a lot of collective issues in every part of our society. In every country, they're a little different. And Tom Friedman wrote an article, and he basically said, we don't have a poverty of money we have a poverty of dignity. And when people don't feel valued, they will feel a sense of humiliation and you'll see anger and unrest like you've never seen before. And what we need in the world is deep listening. Okay, now that is the foundation I started to you to tell you that is the greatest of all skills at home, at work, in our communities is not listen to argue or debate, but listening to understand and validate. And, and so that gift we've been given inspires me. I've always said, even in my worst of times, I had the greatest job in the world. I get a chance to be a leader, to affect people's lives, and to create human value along parallel with economic value. Some people say, doesn't it cost money to care? And I said, no, actually, if you think about it, when you fuel your business model with people who share their gifts with you and go home and nice feeling valued, it only makes sense that you're optimizing the skills and the talent and sending people home feeling valued. Because if you design a business model that doesn't work, you're gonna hurt people, okay? 
I'll leave. So Simon Sinek has a famous quote now that I use all the time. In the military, we honor those who give of themselves in service of others. And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. Very, very powerful message. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Bob, really wide-ranging discussion. And uh, it's just wonderful to think how you're now spreading this word around the world. Just one final question. If you had the opportunity to go back, knowing what you know now, at this stage of your career, and talk to your 20-year-old self, and what, what would you say to that 20-year-old self? What advice would you give them? I get a chance to tell a lot of other 20-year-olds, so I'll tell myself what I tell them. Write your eulogy, okay? Someday when you leave this earth, what do you want people to say about your life? Mm -hmm. It would make you proud. And then go make it true. So many people in life live event to event. I got a job. We got married, we had kids, we bought a house, we joined a club, we got a vacation home. So many people I meet live life as a series of events. And all of a sudden, we come to the end of the life when we look back. And what did it mean? I would suggest that the greatest gift you could give to yourself as a 20-year-old is from, from my observations in my life, my faith, my family, my friendships, what do I want my life to stand for? And write it down and pretend that somebody's going to read that with you sitting there about your life. What would make you proud that you've used your gifts to live life fully in service of others and write that down and then go make it true by your actions. Live life with purpose towards a destination in mind that would make you proud and those who brought you into this world proud. It's just so interesting that you say that, Bob, because I mentioned my father passed away about a year ago and I was asked to do his eulogy, which was a real privilege. And what I did was that I sent out to about 35 people who knew him best, what, what is three words you think of when you think of Alan Cowan? And then I put it together into a word cloud and it was just Fascinating to see the most prominent words there. The biggest one by far was generosity. And he was a very generous person in time and advice and money. He was really, really, really generous. And then it was caring and cheekiness. And, and <laughs> it was just a wonderful, wonderful list. And um, I, 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 I do really believe that he had the chance to see that and um, realize the impact he had on, on those around him. Yeah, yeah I, I, I said to you, my mom lived, my dad died when I was six, my mom lived to 95. But the beauty is when she was 80, I decided to surprise her with a video of her life that she actually was a star in, but she didn't know it. <laughs> and at her 40th birthday, we showed this video of her life while she still had her full mental capabilities. And she was overwhelmed because I had her brother and my two sisters talk about her life. And, and she told the story because she didn't know she was telling it for the reason. So she told us, I have a farm girl that, you know, I had to sell tomatoes, 10 cents a pound to buy a store-bought dress, very modest, simple, Iowa farm girl. 
And so what's interesting is because I capture this is the advice I give to your listeners. I'd give it to you. Your dad died when he was 95, similar as my mom. But at her, when she passed away five years ago, I decided I don't want anybody to stand up there and talk about my mother. I want my mother to stand up there. So we rented a portable outdoor big screen. We gathered together the people in her family and in kind of a little semi-amphitheater. And my mom gave the talk at her funeral. And it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming because it was when she had her, she died of Alzheimer's. So she didn't, she couldn't have done that, you know. And so the beauty is she felt appreciated while she had her mental skills. It wasn't when she was passed away. So I would say to you, don't wait until they're in death's door to tell them what they mean to you. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Bob. It's been a really wonderful, wonderful experience. And hopefully there'll be a part two because I think there's a whole lot of uh, extra areas to explore. Uh, I look forward to your thoughts on this and how to convey it in a way in which it affirms your belief. And uh, honestly, it's a privilege to talk to people with your character and passion in life. So it's a joy. Together, maybe we can make a difference in the world. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.